Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness. And we just uh, want to hear from you this morning. We pray you just speak to our hearts. And, and, uh, and thank you just for the privilege of having fellowship with you, Lord. Have your way with us now, please. Guide us and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would, turn to Isaiah chapter 60. This morning, Lord willing, we'll read 1661. We've been on a three-chapter-a-week pace so far. You may or may not have noticed that um, uh, for the last several weeks, but uh, um, there are not 69 cha- or 68 chapters in the in the book. There's 66, so today is 1661, and then, Lord willing, next week is 62, 63, 64. Then, Lord willing, the next week is 65 and 66. And then we'll say we studied Isaiah. All right? All right? We'll say we studied. That was very enthusiastic. I appreciate that. Sort of that blend of enthusiasm and respect. It's just hard to know where, you, where we fall on that line. Because we... Never mind. Isaiah was a prophet. Uh, and also a historian, if you think about it. And much of what we, as we read through uh, the book of Isaiah, we've been talking about this for, you know, 59 chapters now. Much of what we read is history of the time of Isaiah, and much is prophetic, and they kind of overlap a little bit, right? And sometimes prophecy plays out according to the pages of history. And the part that's prophetic Sometimes it's prophetic, I mean, it's, 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 it's in the future at the time of Isaiah's writing, right? But if you follow the timeline, that might be the future that's yet past tense still to us, right? Maybe future yet forward of us. Does that all make sense? Okay. So, like, Isaiah could be saying, hey, in the future, there's going to be a Messiah come, and he's going to be born of a virgin. Isaiah said that, right? And that's, that was future, but it was, it's past for us. And then there's other future that he gives that's, um, that's yet future for us. And for Isaiah, it's kind of like all the same. It's all future, right? And we find ourselves somewhat in the middle of that. And so we're kind of, uh, we, we kind of find ourselves moving that way a little bit more um, explicitly, if you will, in these last several chapters of Isaiah. And specifically, uh, there's a lot of discussion about the millennial kingdom. And, um, and specifically, the word glory, interestingly, I saw one commentator said this, the word glory in these chapters 60 to 66 is written 23 times, so glory or some form of it, kind of pointing to sort of a future glory. Okay, so now again, I want to review the timeline, uh, if we could, because I think it's important that we kind of keep this sort of grid in our minds. Is that fair? We'll go, uh, I, um, you know, if I go from your, you you read left to right, but I'm facing you. So I I did my thing with Isaiah from right, from my left to your right. But I'll go now from your left to your right, just to accommodate you. So you'll know how accommodating I am. Is that fair? So. You know, there's the time of Isaiah, and then there's the time of Christ, and, you know, then there's uh, lots of history, and then uh, we'll say there's today, and then yet future, I believe the order of things, and we could 
there's lots written about this, and there, and there are different opinions about how the order will play out in future events uh, prophetically. Um, I'll tell you what I've been taught and what I believe and, 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 and why and all that, but I think it, 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 it fits with the rest of Scripture, at least in the way I read it, but here's the order as I see it. I believe there will be a, great, uh, there'll be a, a, a rapture of the church that could happen at any moment. Okay, we talked about that last week. And with the rapture of the church, if you're not familiar with that term, um, uh, basically in a moment, uh, the Bible says in a twinkling of an eye, every Christian is going to sort of meet up with Jesus in the air. That'll be pretty cool, right? That'll be very cool. And we'll go to heaven with Jesus. Uh, It's like he won't set foot on planet earth, but he will meet us in the air and we meet up with him, and then we go back up into heaven. And we hang up there while on earth a seven-year period of tribulation plays out. It's sometimes referred to as the Great Tribulation. And during that time, uh, we see that described in the book of Revelation pretty clearly. Um, And again, if you take these events as literally as possible, which again, the reason that I personally do that is because Jesus' first coming was fulfilled very literally, and so we've been through that. Uh, But anyway, there'll be a period of seven years of great tribulation. After that time, Jesus and us will come back, and at that point, he will set foot on planet earth, okay? He sets foot on planet earth, and he sets up what's called the millennial kingdom. Some people call it the kingdom age. Um, But basically, it'll be a thousand-year reign on earth where Satan is bound. Would that be cool? Satan is bound and uh, won't have any influence on any of us. Uh, And it'll be much like, it's not going to be heaven, but it's going to be the millennial kingdom. And it'll be much like uh, what we see described in the Garden of Eden before the fall. Okay, so I think of it like the Garden of Eden. It's not heaven, it's, it's on earth, but it's like the Garden of Eden before the fall. And then after uh, the end of that thousand-year uh, uh, millennial kingdom, Satan's released for a brief time. Uh, this is, you may ask, well, why is that? And I'd say, I don't know, God, because the Bible says so. Uh, Satan's released for a brief time. Uh, he'll cause a little bit of further deception, and then there's a final judgment, and heaven and hell, and we want to be on the right side of that equation. Okay. Does that make sense? So, so the thousand-year reign, the Satan's release for a short time, the heaven and hell, you know, by that time we will have seen all this play out, right? And so there won't be a lot of mystery involved, uh, at least for us, because we'll have our Bibles. Uh, but for now, there's a little bit, I think it's important that we kind of see, and I'm laying some groundwork here because as we lay it, as we lay the groundwork, uh, as we see this play out, it kind of, uh, hopefully it kind of flows a little bit better. Um, but as we look, the, the first event really to happen, again, the way I described it, if it plays out the way I described it, the first event that's going to happen yet future in all these uh, end times events is the rapture of the church. Okay? And so that's what we look for. We look for the rapture of the church. I heard, I've heard several uh, teachers that talk that hold this view. One of the reasons they believe in a, and that we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, the rapture coming before that seven-year period of tribulation, is that during that seven-year period of tribulation, the Antichrist uh, arises and does a, lot of, does a lot of his work during that great tribulation. 
Well, if the rapture happened after the tribulation, then the next event that we would see coming is what? It's the tribulation, right? And we'd be looking for what? The Antichrist. We'd say, I wonder, wonder, and you might even, if you hear people talk about end times, because people are kind of talking about it a little more so right now, people say things like, I had a guy ask me point blank, so who do you think the Antichrist is? I'm like, you know, because we know we're in the last days, right? You know, he's not going to just come out of the vacuum. He's probably going to, uh, anyway, he's going to, there are some, some things in Revelation, for the interest of time, I won't go into all of it, but basically he's going to be an agent of peace. He's going to make a deal with, a, a covenant with the Jewish people. And so he's going to be a very, a very prominent figure, right, as he rises to power. And could it be that he's alive on earth today and is just not yet fully risen to that place of prominence? Maybe. But what am I looking for? Jesus. And that's what Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, right? I need to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith. Don't look unto the Antichrist, right? I look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith. And so one of the reasons I believe the Bible teaches a pre-tribulation rapture is we're supposed to look for Jesus. If it were anything other than a pre-tribulation rapture, we'd be looking for the Antichrist. And I don't think we're supposed to be looking for the Antichrist, frankly. I think we're supposed to be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And so, um, as as these things play out, it's kind of... um, Now, let's say you just uh, dropped in here and you don't really, you you know, this is all new to you and, you know, you just want to, you know, you just want to come to church so you can, like, find whatever it is you're looking for and you don't even know what you're looking for, Right? And I just lay out this end times timeline, and you think, wait a minute, I just want to learn how to stop cussing, right? <laughs> right? I mean, and so I get that, right? But here we are, we're reading prophecy, and we're reading the whole Bible, and that's how it rolls. But it is very relevant. And here's why I think it's super, super relevant. Sometimes we'll hear things like, seriously, meet, meet Jesus in the air? That sounds ridiculous. Seriously, a thousand years where we're just doing, thing, doing our thing on earth, that seems ridiculous. You know, this, that whole, you're just talking out there. Well, let me just ask you this. Early in the book of Genesis, we're told that uh, Abraham had uh, his firstborn son was named, anybody? Ishmael. Trick question. Nobody fell for that. That's awesome. Good job, everybody. Okay. I was, I was, I was fishing for an Isaac, right? But I got Ishmael. That's awesome. So uh, Ishmael, and then came Isaac. And the Bible tells us that these two guys are going to fight with one another forever, basically, you know, for centuries, right? Now, that's that tribulation stuff and that, that rapture stuff you think might sound crazy, right? But oh, by the way, front page news today tells us that the descendants of Isaac and the descendants of Ishmael are fighting. Is it relevant? Yes. Super relevant. I remember back in the 90s, I tell my pastor this from up in Indianapolis, I, I tell him this every now and then. I remember he was kind of a, I always kind of thought he was a little bit of a conspiracy theorist. He was one of those guys that, you know, is always kind of like, you know, they're coming to get us kind of, kind of a guy, right? 
At least that's how I, I was teasing him about it. And I remember back in the 90s, he said, you know what? Bible Revelation says the mark of the beast is going to come and, and you know, you're going to have these chips on your, on your wrist or on your forehead and uh, that's going to be the only way you can buy and sell stuff. And he says, you know what? He said, they're making credit cards now that have like a chip on them. And I'm like, conspiracy theorists, conspiracy theorists, go home, you're crazy, you know, this is, I'll always be able to whop down a $20 bill and buy what I want. Right? What do we have? What's on my credit card? Chip. Chip. Right? What do you do to your dog if you don't want to lose the dog? You microchip the dog. Right? Is that an outlandish idea that we read in Revelation? No. Chips buying and selling? Mary and Nate were in Chicago this week and they were talking about um, in like the, I forget what it was, the subway or something, that you can't, not only can you not lose, use cash, now you can't use credit card, you got to scan the app. Well, you know that phone's awful inconvenient to carry around. It'd be a lot easier to scan my forehead, right? So we've gone from now, cash is not really cash, to could it be, now I'm starting to sound like my pastor up in Indianapolis, aren't I? We bond a lot more over these things now than we used to. But, uh, you know, you can't use cash. Could it be the time comes you can't use credit card? Just use the app, right? I mean, you think about the app, right? How much pressure do we have right now? Well, you know, you get coupons if you just use the app. You know, you go in Starbucks. I feel like, I feel like Mr. Old School, big time, whenever I go to Starbucks, right? I'm glad we don't have Starbucks in this town because then I, but you know, what do I do when I go to Starbucks? Put my chip in the chip reader, right? That's so, that's so nineties, right? Right? What's everybody, what do all the cool people do? Pretty soon the cool people are going to (laughs) go, right? Just flash my forehead. Well, that was easy. Right? Or these things seem outlandish? They don't really seem outlandish to me. You know, is he, uh, um, uh, the Bible talks about two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11. Uh, two witnesses are going to come on the scene during the tribulation. They're going to die. And it says in, the, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 9, that all the world is going to watch for three and a half days. How in the world could all the people in the world, at the time of the, that John wrote the book of Revelation, did he have any clue what he was really writing? No. Like how in the world could all the world watch these two dead guys lay there for three and a half days? Internet, right? And so I, I say that not to make you like feel weird inside, right? I say that not to say... Uh, right? Because we're looking to Jesus. All I say is these things are very, like, as they play out, as they play out, these things are very relevant. They're very um, understandable, 
right? Things that, were, things that had been written long ago that previously, in previous generations, the people would have read the Bible and said, what? You've heard me say before, the nation of Israel ceased to exist from 70 AD until 1948. And so from 70 AD until 1948, people would have read prophetic scripture about the nation of Israel playing a role in the, in the prophetic fulfillment. They would have said, that seems crazy. But we have enough hindsight now to say, well, that's not crazy. It's a nation as of 1948. And you know, the nation, the descendants of Esau, I'm sorry, the descendants of Isaac and the descendants of Ishmael are still fighting today. The internet would provide us an opportunity to watch these two witnesses die for three, be dead for three and a half days. The internet would, or the, the technology makes it very believable that we would buy and sell using a, an implanted chip. All these things are extremely believable. But let me just say this, whenever we talk about these things, sometimes there's a tendency for us to like get a little bit uptight about this. I'm here to tell you, these things are exciting. These things are exciting because we can, number one, look to Jesus. And number two, as, as these things roll out, it's like we know, we know them to be true. We see, we, it's like it confirms our faith. And we also see an openness. I believe, and I've, as I've said the last few weeks, I believe with all my heart that there is a, there's a hunger and a thirst for spiritual things right now really like perhaps not in our lifetimes. And I think there's an opportunity to share the love of Christ with uh, folks that are hungry and to answer questions. This is why I want us to learn the Bible. This is why I want to learn the Bible, because that's where the answers are. Can you imagine somebody coming to you with a life and death question, an eternal life and death question, and you try and you just give them your opinion? Right? right? Or like, give them your politics? I want, I, want to give, I want to give people more than that. I want to be able to give people the very words of God and not my opinion. I'm old enough to know what's happened to my opinion over the years and how, and how valuable it is. Right? I mean, if you come to me as a doctor with a terminal disease and you say, what should I do? I'm like, well, what? Yeah, I get saved. <laughs> you know, you come with a, just as a doctor now. You, know, you come to me as a doctor, <laughs> you got a terminal disease, right? And I'm like, you know, we didn't have that class in school. Or, you know, I was, we had the class, but I slept in that day, right? I'm not laying a trip on anybody. But I don't want to, somebody, there are serious questions being raised in our society, legitimate serious questions being raised in our society by confused people that need answers, that I believe are hungry for answers. And I don't want to tell them that I missed that class that day. There's an old Far Side cartoon, one of my favorites, that a bunch of surgeons around a table. And one guy says, what is that? Another guy says, I think it's the spleen. Another guy says, I didn't take the spleen class in medical school, right? 
We need to be ready. The Bible says be ready to give an answer. And so these are the days we live in. They're very relevant. They're very believable. And so the pages of history are played out. And I give you all that long drawn out thing because these chapters talk about that millennial kingdom, right? This millennial kingdom is a beautiful thing we can look forward to. And by the way, as we see these things play out, it confirms, Chuck Smith used to say this all the time, when you see Christmas decorations go up, right? Like at Lowe's, right? Christmas decorations go up, you know that what's around the corner? Well, it used to be be Thanksgiving, now it's Halloween, right? Pretty soon, you know, it won't be long, we'll say, oh, Labor Day must be here, Uh, the Christmas decorations are up, right? You know that when you see events play out that could play into the Great Tribulation, when you see chip technology that would make you say, that looks like that's going to be relevant in the Great Tribulation, then you know that that event that precedes that is, is near, potentially, right? So when you see the Christmas decorations go up, you know Thanksgiving is right around the corner, right? And so that's how it plays out prophetically. Chapter 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you, and his glory will be seen upon you. So arise, for your light has come, is contrasted here with darkness. And this, again, as we speak historically uh, to the the more near fulfillment of Isaiah's day, uh, he was preaching to captives in Babylon. They were in Babylon from the nation of Judah because of their sin. God carried them off to Babylon uh, to deal with them. But he's going to bring them back to their homeland, and he's offering encouragement to those that feel like they're in darkness because he's going to say, arise, shine, your light has come. The time is going to be coming for you to return to to Jerusalem. But notice here, Uh, This speaks of a greater darkness than just the darkness of captivity in Babylon, because he's talking about a darkness shall cover the earth. A darkness shall cover the earth. So again, I think we're talking about the millennial kingdom, the kingdom age that comes after the tribulation. And so we see these parallels throughout the scripture in the same way that we see the captives in Babylon for seven years or 70 years that will then get to come out. We see a great tribulation, right? And during that great tribulation, uh, there's going to be several things going on. One is basically God's going to be pouring out his wrath on a God-rejecting world. But another sort of subplot that's going to happen during the great tribulation is God is going to get the attention of people, specifically the nation of Israel. God is going to get the attention of the nation of Israel. So by the end of that tribulation period, they are ripe for Jesus to come back. Okay, And so, you know, you talk about 144,000, you hear people talk about that. Those are 144,000 Jewish evangelists that are alive and doing their thing on planet Earth during the Great Tribulation. Can you imagine 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams running around during a Great Tribulation, during a period of Great Tribulation? I mean, it's going to be a time of great tribulation, but there's also going to be uh, a lot of the work of what the Lord is accomplishing during that time. And so that's sort of the darkness, if you will. He says, he says darkness, uh, deep darkness, the, uh, 
shall cover the earth, darkness shall cover the earth, and deep darkness the people, but the Lord will arise over you. So that darkness of the tribulation is going to be followed by uh, the arrival of the millennial kingdom established by Jesus. And so he's talking, yes, to the captives in, in Babylon, but even uh, but that's sort of the near fulfillment. But even beyond that, he's talking about the millennial kingdom that comes after the tribulation. He says, the Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. So he mentions here uh, Gentiles, and this is an important distinction. So, um, you know, during that millennial kingdom, Jesus is going to set up his throne there in Jerusalem. It's going to be sort of the Jewish headquarters, but it's going to be a magnet for the Gentiles, right? We get to share in, in uh, the salvation from the Jewish Messiah, right? And so the millennial kingdom is going to rise from Jerusalem, but the rest of the Gentile world is definitely going to uh, take notice, and they're going to look to the light of Jesus at that point. Verse 4, lift up your eyes all around and see, they all gather together, they come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be nursed at your side. Then you shall see and become radiant, and your heart will swell with joy because of the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. And so it speaks of a great regathering of the Jewish people. And again, that regathering has started already, right? In 1948, they regathered and they formed a nation there in the Promised Land, and they continue to regather even today. It's like a great family reunion. It says that your heart will swell with joy. Can you imagine living in this millennial kingdom where Satan is bound, where, where there's no conflict, there's no wars? It'll be a beautiful place, and our heart will swell with joy. And notice also here it says, the wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. There's a couple of sort of uh, um, prior events that we see in the Bible that kind of helps us kind of envision this. Do you remember the, the uh, Jewish people in Egypt the night before they uh, left Egypt for the Exodus, right? And you remember they've been through, those, Jew, those, those Egyptians have been through uh, all the plagues, and it's time for the Jewish people to leave. And God tells the Jewish people a very interesting thing. Hey, by the way, ask all your neighbors for all their jewelry and all their money and all their gold. And you'd think, you know, we live in a very capitalistic society. Well, what do I get? What's in it for me? Right? But in that time, that, that right before they left, all the Egyptians just basically gave them all their stuff all their gold and all their jewelry. Because you got to make a calf out of something, right? So anyway, they had lots of gold and lots of jewelry and lots of everything, but the point is they had favor from the people almost miraculously. They just brought it, right? Think of the time of Solomon, right? Remember the Queen of Sheba? She just showed up and brought stuff because she wanted to hear what Solomon had to say, right? Just showered him with stuff. And so there's going to be a, a sense here that, you know, the Jewish people, the, the millennial kingdom, Jesus on the throne, Gentile, the Gentile world is just going to come and share their wealth. And the multitude of camels shall cover your land, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and incense, just like the Queen of Sheba did for Solomon. 
And they shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered together to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall ascend with acceptance on my altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory. And so, you know, again, people are just going to bring stuff. Remember the, the wise men, right? I mean, we don't know really the, the, the background of the wise men when Jesus was born. We just know that it's like they woke up and said, wow, there's a star. It must be the king of the Jews, and we need to go worship him and give him gold and frankincense and myrrh. I mean, you think about it, right? They just showed up. Well, that's what it's going to be like in the millennial kingdom. Verse 8, those who are these who fly like a cloud and like doves to their roosts, surely the coastlands shall wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar, their silver and their gold with them, to the name of the Lord your God to all, to, and to the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. And so again, uh, just more of the same. They're just going to be bringing their stuff, bringing their stuff, bringing their stuff, because they want to see what God has to offer. The sons of foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Therefore, your gates shall be open continually. They shall not be shut day or night, that men may bring to you the wealth of the Gentiles and their kings in procession. And so, again, the near fulfillment is, you know, God said, in my wrath I struck you, right? In my wrath I sent you to Babylon to... to sort of be disciplined for 70 years. And now I'm bringing you out. The far fulfillment, he's going to say, you know, in my wrath, I gave you seven years of great tribulation. But after that, uh, then your gates shall be open continually and men may bring you the wealth of the Gentiles and the kings in procession. People will be coming from all over just to be a part of the action. You know, it's interesting, there will also be um, a temple built in that time for the kingdom. Ezekiel chapter 40 to 47, this is interesting, Ezekiel chapter 40 to 47 gives exquisite detail, God prophesies to Ezekiel, uh, there's going to be a temple, and these are the dimensions. It's like God gave Ezekiel the blueprints of the temple, and if you plot it out prophetically, that temple will be the temple during the millennial kingdom. And <clears throat> so, you know, the Gentile wealth will come and uh, be a part of that building process and, and the provision for that. You say, well, what about conflict on earth at that time? How does the conflict go away? Verse 12, for the nation and kingdom which will not serve you shall perish, and those nations shall be utterly ruined. So there's a sad reality of, of sin. I mean, you know, it's, it's not all like God's going to wave his magic wand and everything's perfect, right? God has to deal with sin. And those individuals and those nations that reject God uh, will uh, suffer accordingly. Verse 13, the glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the pine, and the box tree together to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. So again, speaking to the, uh, speaking probably of the uh, temple that will be built during that time, you recall when Solomon built his temple, right? 
the um, the cypress, the pines the, from Lebanon, the, the 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 great trees. Lebanon was famous for their great trees. Uh, they would ship them. They would send them off into uh, the Mediterranean Sea, bring them down along the coast, and then carry them uh, over to Jerusalem to build Solomon's temple. And so, um, you know, those great great trees, great resources will be used to build that temple as well. Also, the sons of those who have afflicted you shall come bowing to you, and all those who despise you shall fall prostrate at the soles of your feet, and they shall call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, so that no one went through you, I will make you an eternal excellence, a joy of many generations. So one of the things that we see played out that would make us sort of believe the Scripture is that there's a description that Israel has many enemies amongst its neighbors. Is that believable today? That's extremely believable today. Many Israel's surrounded by by enemies. And, you know, some are a little more friendly than others, but, um, you know, there's going to be a great conflict. The the conflict uh, will increase to basically... uh, to the point that Jesus comes and deals with it. But interestingly, uh, the sons, the descendants of those who afflicted you shall now come bowing to you. So the nations that are left after the great tribulation, when Jesus sets up the millennial kingdom, will come and they'll, uh, they'll worship uh, Jesus. You shall drink the milk of the Gentiles and milk the breasts of kings. You shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. So can you see this? Even in the midst of all this prophetic stuff, God never stops being personal, right? Who is He? I, the Lord, am your Savior. I, the Lord, am your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. So what am I? I'm your Savior, He says. Save us from what? Save us from sin. That, that's universal, right? Because we're all sinners. Jesus is the one who saves us. Not universal in that everyone is saved, right? But universal in that all who would believe, you know, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever, what? Believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life, John three sixteen. And so uh, Jesus, even in the midst of this whole prophetic thing, He says, oh, by the way, don't forget, I am your Savior. I'm your Redeemer. I'm your Redeemer. Not only are we all sinners, we're all slaves of sin. If you've ever had um, occasion to realize how uh, captivating our sin is, we know that, right? Talk to somebody that's battled addiction, for example, and they feel enslaved to that addiction. I feel sorry for, for folks that are enslaved to that, right? But we're all enslaved to sin to some extent or another. And so uh, Jesus, he buys us out of the slave market. It's like he goes and he picks us out. Yep, there's a slave. I'm going to buy that one back into fellowship with me. He's our redeemer. He's our savior. He's our redeemer. And by the way, is he able to do that? Yeah, he's the mighty one of Jacob. He's the mighty one of Jacob. He said, instead of bronze, I'll bring gold. 
Instead of iron, I'll bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of stones, iron. I will also make your officers peace and your magistrates righteousness. Violence shall no longer be heard in your land, neither wasting nor destruction within your borders, but you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. And so there's going to be tons of peace and prosperity. Prosperity is not all bad, right? When Jesus is in charge, that's a good thing. Verse 19, the sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor, the bright, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you, but the Lord will be to you an everlasting light, and your God your glory. Your sun shall no longer go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and the days of your morning shall be ended. So here's an example where, you know, we're talking about the millennium, but from Isaiah's point of view, it's all future, right? And so... It, Maybe here that we're talking ultimately about heaven. Um, probably we're talking to some extent about the millennium, part of, partly about uh, heaven. These verses are, are fairly uh, reminiscent, if you will, of Revelation chapter 21, which describes the new Jerusalem, uh, which is the new Jerusalem is described after the millennial kingdom. Also your people shall all be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. A little one shall become a thousand, and a small one, a strong nation, I, the Lord, will hasten it in its time. And so he says, your people shall all be righteous. Think about this for a second. We're going to have sweet fellowship with Jesus during that millennial kingdom. Now, for our time today, for our lives that we live today, do we have fellowship with Jesus? Yeah, we do. Is it perfect fellowship we have with Jesus? Not really, right? What is the limiting factor in, uh, that makes our fellowship with Jesus imperfect? Is it his, like, is it our circumstances? Is the fact that we live in a fallen world? Eh, not really. What's the primary inhibitor of fellowship with Jesus in our lives? Our sin. Our sin. What's he say here about the fellowship we'll have with him in the millennial kingdom? He says, also, your people shall all be righteous. Not righteous because we're righteous. Righteous because he makes us that way. And we can enjoy sweeter, more complete fellowship with him because of the righteousness that he gives us. And why does he do it? That I may be glorified. Can I tell you something? Glorifying Jesus is our purpose of existing. It's, it's why we live. It's why God put us here, was to glorify him. And I'm... I'm so passionate about this because we, as human beings, even as we're serving Him, even as we're doing our Christian thing and, and you know, whatever our Christian thing is, we have a tendency, we have this capacity to serve Him, but we kind of want the credit, right? Because I want to say, I'm a pretty awesome servant of God. That's an oxymoron, right? If I say I'm a pretty awesome servant of God, I've just contradicted myself. But we like to say stuff like that subconsciously or consciously, 
right? He wants to be glorified. And so all your people shall be righteous. And he says, this is going to be the work of my hands that I may be glorified. That'll be a beautiful... I mean, it's almost hard to comprehend how sweet it will be to serve God without sin, without pretense, without who gets the credit, with Him being on the throne, establishing His kingdom for a thousand years like the Garden of Eden. Satan is bound, and the, Gentile, the rest of the entire world comes together to say, you're awesome. That'd be great. That'd be a great place. I look forward to being there. Chapter 61, he goes on. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Sounds like a messianic thing, don't you think? Listen to that again. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Most of your Bibles probably have a capital M, me there. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and to the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Who does that sound like? Sounds like Jesus, right? I bet it does. Well, we love when the Scripture interprets the Scripture, right? So turn over to Luke chapter 4. Starting in verse 16. When you're there, say there. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he opened it, opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And so some commentators say, you know, they had a, there would have been a certain order and this day that Jesus happened to show up, it happened to be his turn to read and they happened to be at this point in the scripture. But anyway, it's interesting that this is what he read. This is what he read. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Notice here then, then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. That would have been a pretty awkward moment, don't you think? Jesus re- stands up. He just reads these verses, gives the scroll back to the guy that's in charge. And then he sits down, and everybody's staring at him. And then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Boom! Can you imagine? And so all who bore witness to all bore witness to him, 
and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, wait a minute, this guy's a human. Is this not Joseph's son? Right? So they were perplexed. They weren't ready for that. But he hit, it with it, hit him with it. But notice I want to point out here, look at what he read. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book. Okay? Flip back to Isaiah. Let's read those verses again. Okay? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And that's where he closed the book. Right? Jesus didn't read these words. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Now, many commentators say, he didn't read those words because those words refer to the tribulation. And with the time that Jesus came, it wasn't time for the tribulation yet. It was just time for part of this fulfillment to happen. And what was that? That was the messianic part uh, during his time here on earth. But there is a time, the day, of judgment, the day of vengeance of our God, and then to comfort all who mourn after that. Because we're talking about the millennium, right? Jesus was just talking about the partial fulfillment of that was when the day of the Lord comes and he's here. But the rest of that verse that he didn't read is, and the day of the vengeance of our God, tribulation, and to comfort all who mourn the millennium after the tribulation. So it's just kind of an interesting way that that kind of uh, plays out. But notice what Jesus' ministry was as the Messiah on this earth and what it is to this day. He loves to preach good tidings to the poor. He said in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, right? So regardless of what your bank account says, it's good to be poor in spirit. What does poor in spirit mean? Poor in spirit means I don't have all the answers, right? I was talking to somebody during the break, right? I'm, you know, pushing 60 years old. I'm a lot smarter than I was when I was 20. But I thought I was a lot smarter when I was 20 than I think I am now. The reason I'm smarter than now than I was then is because I think I'm a lot more clueless now than I thought I was then. Does that make sense? Everybody follow that? You, why did you follow that? Because you resonate with the exact same thing, right? Man, I was so on top of my game. I was so smart. My mother used to say, one of these days, I'm going to be a lot smarter in your eyes. Sure enough. Sure enough. So, Jesus said, I came to bring good tidings to the poor, to the poor in spirit. I love the good tidings of Jesus. There's nothing like it. That's why, again, when we talk about these end times events, they should not shriek fear in our hearts. They should make us say, awesome. Awesome. Are you kidding? One day, perhaps very soon, we'll meet Jesus in the air. Now, have there been generations before us that thought it was going to happen like tomorrow? Yeah, that's fine. If it happens in our lifetime, is that awesome? No. Yes, it is. If it doesn't happen in our lifetimes, is that still awesome? Why? Because we have this... 
studying the end times events should cause us to look to Jesus and say, whoa, this could happen tomorrow. That's cool. I should have uh, an acuity. I should have my antennas up because he could come tomorrow. And I still have lost friends. And that should wake me up. That should get me out of bed in the morning. That should make me think beyond, oh, I'm not too comfortable in this easy chair. Right? If I'm really, if I'm really believing these words, if I'm really believing that Jesus could come back at any moment, then it doesn't make me freaked out. It just makes me deliberate. And it makes me focused not on myself or my comfort or my entitlements or what I think I need. It makes me kind of just live day by day and, you know, cover the bases, right? Still prepare for the future and he may not come tomorrow and all of those kinds of things, right? But it makes me much more aware that he could come back. So that's a good tiding, right? Is that a good tiding? Jesus can come back tomorrow? That's a great tiding to the poor. What else does he do? He loves to heal brokenhearted people. You know, there are a lot of brokenhearted people. There are honestly way too many brokenhearted people in this world. I, I grieve for him. And I, 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 the older I get, the more I, I understand why they're brokenhearted. Because honestly, this world is a disappointment. You know, so many people go through, you know, hey, I want to do this. And, you know, you talk to a, you talk to a high school graduate or go to a high school graduation thing, right? Yeah, you guys graduate high school. You're on top of your game. You know, the rest of the world is your oyster. You're going to go conquer. And, you know, you listen to these people talk and, and, and you're like, yeah, that's what I thought because I was so smart back then, right? And then life goes on, a couple disappointments, a couple of this. You find out that the world's quite, not quite so uh, fulfilling as, it, as we maybe thought. And lo and behold, what are we? We're brokenhearted. That's an okay place to be if that causes us to turn to Jesus. But let me tell you this. He has sent me, he says, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, right? Those that are captivated by sin, Right? He wants to set us free, and He can do that. He can do that. To open, open the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That's what He does. He goes on, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. Can I tell you this? Whenever you feel tragedy or despair, or something that causes you great mourning, there is something pretty amazing about God's ability to take our ashes and turn them into something beautiful. He loves to do that. He loves to do that in a way that only He can do. And then, that's the planting of the Lord. Why? That He may be glorified. Because we all know, if we're honest with ourselves... That you can take your ash heap and try to mold it into something good, right? 
And sometimes we like to take our, sometimes we spend a lot of time with our ash heaps, right? Trying to nurture that ash heap and, you know, and, and, you know, when somebody else calls it an ash heap, they just don't get it because they're, they're out of touch. And, and, you know, I just kind of like my ash heap and whatever it's, whatever we've kind of created in our lives, it's really our ash heap. And over time, if we're honest with ourselves, we realize the best we can do about, with, the best we can do with an ash heap is to make it kind of a neat, like, well-organized pile of ash, right? Oh, wow, that's very nice. You got that molded into a shape that looks like a little dome. Cool, right? That's as good as we can get, right? God loves to make beauty for ashes. Beauty for ashes. In this world, our sin, our disappointments, our circumstances causes a lot of ashes in our lives. The longer we go through life, the more ashes we accumulate sometimes. But God loves to make make those into beauty. Oil of joy for mourning. He He exchanges our mourning for oil of joy. Spirit of heaviness. You know, there's a lot of spirit of heaviness in this life. Just sort of the weight of the world, the weight of the, of the responsibilities of this world. Sometimes we just want to escape for 10 minutes, right? Just the, the responsibilities and, and, you know, that challenging relationship, it's like it never goes away. That financial burden, it's just like it never goes away. That illness, it's like it never goes away. The pain, it never goes away. That's a spirit of heaviness. Jesus gives us a garment of praise for that that he may be glorified. Notice that recurring theme, that he may be glorified. Verse 4, and they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the, the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. And so the they here probably refers to, in the context, those who were once brokenhearted during the millennial kingdom, those who were captive. Now they've been delivered. Now they can rebuild the ruins in the millennium, right? There'll probably be a lot of ruins after the tribulation. So they're going to rebuild that. Strangers shall feed, shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the foreigner shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you shall be named the priests of the Lord. You shall be, they, shall, they shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory you shall boast. And so again, speaking of the blessing of, of the, the time of the millennium, and uh, the Gentiles will pour into the, to the Jewish uh, people. Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. And instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. Verse 8, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth, and I will make with them an everlasting covenant. And so, you know, again, uh, robbery for burnt offering, right? Sometimes we, we give our burnt offerings, if you will, our sacrifice, our service to the Lord, but we do it sort of with robbery. We do it trying to steal some of that uh, glory that, that belongs to the Lord. And we need to be very careful not to do that. Verse 9, their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are the posterity whom the Lord 
has blessed. And so, you know, one of the great blessings of that day is that our, our descendants, it says their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles. Our descendants will worship with us. That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with, with her jewels. Again, a beautiful experience that we'll see in the millennial kingdom, right? So there'll be great joy. And yet, we know that God is not limited. We can have much of this, much of this that we read about here about the millennial kingdom, we can experience today, right? We can experience it today because Jesus is on the throne today. Verse 11, for as the earth brings forth its bud and the, as the garden causes the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord, will, the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. So I love, I mean, you got to love this, right? Um, you got to love the, the continual vegetation metaphors in the Scripture, right? You put a seed in the ground. You put a little seed in the ground, and out comes fruit that you can eat. That's crazy. Isn't that crazy? I mean, if it didn't happen so normally... You know, if you were an alien that just dropped in here from outer space, and the alien says, hey, what do you, you know, what do you do in the summertime? Well, we harvest the garden. What's a garden? Well, we put these little seeds in the ground, and out comes stuff we eat. What? It's crazy. But God does that. I think God shows us that just as a picture of, of His goodness. You know, during the time when King Uzziah, King Uzziah was one of the great kings of the Old Testament, of the kings of Judah, when, well, before he got proud, uh, he was incredibly prosperous. God blessed him. He loved the Lord. And it talks, you know, there's a, there's a paragraph there. It's either in Kings or Chronicles, I forget. It talks about how God blessed him and blessed him, and he had this, and he had this. And, and, it all, and then it talks about, um, you know, he had gardens and orchards because he loved the soil. A great description. He loved the soil. I love the soil. It reminds me what God can do. Right? So, if you read the news today, except for the part about Israel, you'll think, you know, it seems like everything's kind of in chaos and disorder, and um, I don't think anybody's in charge. Right? That's what you'd think. You know, maybe even in America, we got a new administration, right? But, you know, that we had one before, and now we got a different one. Who knows what we'll have? We don't have stability that lasts for greater than four years, right? If even, you know, regardless what side you're on. You'd read the paper, and you'd think, everything just seems like it's chaos. You look around, and you, th you look around on sort of a more of a micro level. You look at our lives. You look at our situations. You look at our community. You look at, at some of the challenges, some of the social challenges that we face. And you'd say, you know, it seems like we're in a little bit of a tailspin. Things are kind of spinning out of control around here. And yet, I acknowledge that we might think that. 
And I especially acknowledge that those people that we, that have questions are thinking that, right? And as we are equipped for the work of our ministry, Ephesians chapter 4, part of our ministry is to be ready to answer those questions. And those questions are, I mean, I'm hearing it all the time. Do you think we're, I mean, I hear, I hear spiritually clueless people, I mean that with no disrespect, spiritually clueless people who haven't picked up a Bible for decades, they, they come to me and, they, and they'll say, you think these are like the last days? And I'm like, would you start reading all of a sudden? Yeah, I think they might be. And so as chaotic as everything is, it's not. It's not. Just as orderly as orderly can be is what God is doing in this world today. Amen. Just as orderly as orderly could be. Yeah. And he knows the number. Of, and along the way, as he orchestrates history, world history, he also knows the number of hairs on our head. Amen. And that we get a taste of it today. Is he good? Amen. Should we be scared? No. Should we feel like, like butterflies inside because we just don't know what's going to happen tomorrow? No. We do know what's going to happen. Jesus is coming back. Yeah. Jesus is coming back. And he's going to take us with him. It's going to be a great experience, Amen. and we can enjoy it today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your, you're just so good to us. Lord, you, you give us just enough answers to keep us searching, to keep us longing for more of you. So, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that, we thank you that you sovereignly wrote the words of these pages, knowing future events, knowing technology, knowing history, knowing who will come, and yet knowing each and every one of us that we would be here for such a time as this. And so Lord, we thank you that you've placed us here to glorify you. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to do just that, that our lives, our words, our actions, our attitudes would bring glory and honor to you. And Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being your children. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Everybody have an awesome week.